0: Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, Amen. Good morning. Three weeks ago on the first Sunday of Advent I told you a story about David Roseberry up at Christ Church in Plano, Texas who lamented that he had found an alarm panel in the church that said, church not ready. <laughs> and I, I talked from that about the fact that Advent is a season of getting ready. And for what? Well, in, in Matthew's Gospel, John the Baptist says that we're to repent. That we are to repent because the kingdom of God is coming near. That might be good news. It might be the great and terrible day of the Lord. We don't know. We know that we are told to prepare and be ready. We're told that we're to repent, to obey the law. Are you ready? I'm not even close to ready. I am not ready for Christmas in its regular form. I have not finished my shopping. I have not uh, done all the things that need to happen. We are not candidly ready for Christmas Eve here yet, but we will be. <laughs> it's going to be beautiful, but we're not ready. I'm especially not ready for that great and terrible day of the Lord, the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am not ready for the second coming, to be held accountable for what I've done and failed to do, according to the law. Annie Dillard writes about this notion that we Call during Advent, come Lord Jesus, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and wonders what would happen if Jesus said, Okie dokie. <laughs> and she writes, What does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. <laughs> Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. We call, come, Lord Jesus, and Jesus were to come, are we ready? I would suggest not. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus writes, and I'm quoting the King James here because it's much more dramatic this way, for verily I say unto you, till heaven end, earth pass, one jot or one tittle, shall in no wise pass for the law from, or from the law till all be fulfilled in other words you must fulfill every detail of the law in order to be ready later in matthew's gospel jesus says be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect, I am not ready. Because I have not followed the law, I have not followed all kinds of laws, and to make things a little more difficult, sometimes this notion of doing the right thing doesn't find its answer in the law. How many people here, I'm asked this is a loaded question because I kind of already know, how many people here, attorneys. Raise your hands if you're an attorney. See those hands going up? Now, did you waste three years at law school when everything is already plainly articulated in the law? Or is it a little trickier than that? Is finding the right thing to do sometimes hard, because you don't have a guide to tell you in every case what is the right thing to do. And we know we're supposed to do the right thing, but knowing what the right thing is sometimes is the tricky part. I'm remembering that a few years ago I received a letter from a parishioner telling me that, and you know, when you get this kind of letter, you you know before you start reading what it's gonna say. He He had canceled his pledge, he was furious because our presiding bishop had been found at a, at a protest at the Dakota Pipeline and he was waving the Episcopal flag in the breeze with the protesters. And he was shocked and he was appalled and he canceled his pledge. And I wrote back to him and I told him the truth. I said, um, the truth is I am not up to speed on this issue. <clears throat> And I wish I were, because I know it's important, but I candidly don't know what is the right thing to do, so I don't know if he did the right thing or not. But I do know this. I don't know the presiding bishop well we've met, but I know a lot of people who know him better than I do. And I know that he is a man who knows and loves God and would do anything, take any risk, for the sake of the gospel. And he may be wrong. And that's the key piece. We may be wrong in the things we do. We may make wrong choices. And God knows we are presented with all kinds of yes, no choices, where not to make a choice is making a choice. To decide all kinds of points of law that are in front of us right now in in, uh, the city of Austin, in our national government, it's a yes, no proposition. What is the right thing to do? Replace the window, don't replace the window. These are binary decisions. They can be argued in both directions. What is the right thing to do? Who's to say? The guy wrote me back, and he said, you know, I think you raise an interesting point, and I, and I agree. Actually, I think this pipeline thing is, is not that big a deal but I'm really upset about the people you choose to associate with. (laughs) Well, uh, I didn't have an answer to that. So I didn't respond. I let it go. But I think sometimes the people we choose to associate with are very revealing, because they reveal something about who we are. Becky's heard me tell this story before, as she always has. But in seminary, I had this one particular professor who was a a taskmaster. She was an ultra-serious, always-right, or so she thought, liturgics professor, Michael, you know how the liturgics professors are. So, uh, Michael is not a liturgics professor, but he knows them. They're always sure they're right. There's not much by way of ambiguity. And Ruth, my liturgics professor, would sit in chapel while we were officiating and make little notes to herself so that when we left the chapel, she could go around to the sacristy and you would hear her coming coming because we had slate floors. And the click, click, click of her heels would signal you that the frow, as we called her, (laughs) was on the way to let you know what you had done wrong. And no matter what you did, you had done something wrong. I remember one particular day I was reading and I read a lesson that had a bunch of Hebrew names I didn't understand or know how to pronounce, so I looked up every one of them and wrote down the pronunciation so I would get it exactly right. And she came and told me I pronounced it wrong, and I said, but I looked it up, and she said, you looked it up in the wrong place. (laughs) Nothing was gonna please this woman. So. In the last week of seminary, towards the end of the week, we signed up to to officiate worship. And I signed up for a service that, frankly, I just don't like. I signed up for it because I do like to sing uh, in liturgy. And I signed up for a service called Matins. Most people haven't been to Matins. It's uh, It's the sung version of morning prayer. And I find it, personally, I find it kind of pretentious. So I never really liked it but it was a chance to sing one last time in the chapel, so I signed up to officiate it on a Thursday. And there was Ruth perched up there, and and as I was singing and and getting kind of uh, uh, wistful about knowing this was the last time I would lead worship there, um, I started making mistakes. And even I knew that I had really made some whopper mistakes in there. So I expected the click, click, click of the heels, and I was right. When it was over, I went in back, and I started taking off my vestments, and click, 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 in comes Ruth. And I made a decision about the law in that moment. I decided that when she told me what I had done wrong, I was going to punch her. I thought, I know I'm going to prison, but it's worth it. So Ruth comes in on her heels and, um, and says, she could tell that I was getting emotional. She could hear it in my voice. And she said, that was really well done. And I said, no it wasn't. And She goes, no it really was. She said, this place really means something to you, doesn't it? And I said, yes, it really does. And she gave me a big hug. And she told me that it was great. Because her instinct in that moment was to teach less by telling me what I had done wrong and to teach me a little bit about compassion. So come back to this gospel reading that we just enjoyed today. It's the story of the birth of Jesus, but it's told from Matthew's gospel instead of Luke's gospel. Now, Luke's gospel is the one you always hear on Christmas Eve. It's the Charlie Brown Christmas version. It's the one that involves uh, innkeepers and angels in the sky singing to shepherds and, and the animals coming around and Mary on a donkey and all of that. That's the one we're familiar with. And it's told pretty much entirely from Mary's point of view. Now, Mary did the right thing. It helped that six months before, the angel of the Lord had appeared to her and told her the right thing to do. Nine months before. The angel had said, I am speaking for God. Here's what I need for you to do. And she did it. It wasn't so hard. Joseph, by contrast, didn't have an angel. Yet. Joseph was just With this woman, Mary, whom he loved, notices that she is, as Scripture says, with child, and um, decides to do the merciful thing and to put her aside quietly. Now, what they don't tell us in this passage, but it is true, now I'm on the hook because we have a Scripture professor here, so he can tell me I'm wrong if I'm wrong, (laughs) but I think I'm right. Not only um, only was he supposed to put her away like this, but the quietly part, not so much. He was supposed to expose her for her own sin. He was supposed to tell everyone, I was engaged to this woman, and now she's pregnant, and I didn't do it. He was supposed to shame her, humiliate her, and have her cast out of town. So, not only did he uh, do the compassionate thing, but he made a conscious choice not to obey the law in order to do it. And he had no angel. He got one later, after Jesus had been born, and they were running away to avoid being killed by Herod. That's another sermon. But that angel came much later to say, click, 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 click. (laughs) You did a great job. You did the right thing. You did the compassionate thing. This same Jesus who in Matthew's gospel tells us, who tells us, be perfect as your Father is perfect, stops for a moment to let that sink in and the realization hit us that we are not perfect as our Father is perfect. None of us is, and none of us can be save for the grace and presence of Jesus Christ. That was his point. To say the stakes are extremely high. Jesus is coming with power and great glory. You must be perfect. You must be ready. And none of us are. He knew that. And so his next words... Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Because what matters is the people we associate with, like each other, and like Jesus, and like the people that God gives us to love and serve in this community. Catherine Woods Richardson rights of this day this sunday as we hear joseph's story we are reminded that we are also called to be companions to the ones in whom the spark of god is growing this may be a harder task yet to welcome god's transforming work in the lives of those closest to us as they change and grow into new and different people before our very eyes But there are rewards," she writes. When we join Joseph in accompanying another who carries Christ within, we can find ourselves some cold, dark night as midwives to the greatest power in the world. We can be struck to awe-filled silence by the wonder of God's love embodied in this person we thought we knew so well we can hold the Christ child in our arms. Is this messy? Sure. Will it hurt? It will likely break our hearts and souls wide open. Will it be the most amazing, awesome, and wonderful thing we could ever do? Yes, that too. So Richardson writes, in these last days of Advent, let us join Joseph and go look for Mary and when we have found her and told her that we're still here, let us set out together on the road to Bethlehem. Let us walk these dwindling days to the place where God is born. Amen.